I try to explain servitude in a number of different ways. It's how well we listen. It's how quickly we resolve issues. It's how transparently we communicate and how swiftly we communicate. It takes a lot of different forms, but I think it's super important to always remember that you're serving someone. As long as we all have that mentality and that's what wakes us up, then the alignment in the clinic is very strong and they feel very well supported. Hey there, dental economist. If you're a dentist owner or a leader within a dental business thinking about growing production, case acceptance, patient and staff satisfaction, positive outcomes, and everything else that comes with running a dental business, then you're a dental economist and you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Dental Economist Show. We're meeting at the intersection of profit and purpose as I sit down with dental leaders who share their stories about dentistry, business, and growth. Welcome back to another episode of The Dental Economist Show. I'm your host, Mike Huffaker. On this episode, I'm joined by Christy Casey, the CEO of Rock Dental Brands, a business whose story has been going since 1936. Under Christie's leadership, Rock recently surpassed the milestone of having over 100 affiliated dental and ortho practices across five states served by their support center headquartered in Little Rock, Arkansas. Christie, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. It's, it's really great to have you on. You've been a longtime Planet DDS client, and as such, I've had the good fortune of having had the opportunity to interact with a number of the folks on the Rock team. I've always been very impressed at the alignment that I've seen and the quality of people that you have within your organization. I've seen you talk about building winning teams and creating a winning culture. What does that mean to you? First of all, I think people want to be a part of a winning team. And winning means having big goals, not just little incremental goals, but big goals. They want to be a part of that. People want to be on a winning team. And so first of all, for me, I set those big goals up front. And I hold people accountable to them. And people want to join and they want to be a part of that. We also believe in having a really good time at work. We all decided to come back to the support center in July of 2020. And I had people around the country that said, if you ask people to come back into the office, they're going to quit. And so I called a all-hands meeting. I said, let's get together a town hall and let's talk about it. And, you know, on our wall, when you walk in to our support center, it says, first thing I want you to see when you walk in as a team member is we serve those who serve our patients. That's the first thing I want you to see because that's our ultimate goal. That's my job. That's their job. We don't have a job if that's not what we're doing is supporting the doctors and supporting their teams. And it felt very disingenuous to say that that's our number one. That's the reason why we wake up. That's the fire in our belly. But yet, we want you to go into the clinic and see patients, but we're scared, so we're at home. And once I explained that to the teams, they got really fired up. They said, you're right. I didn't have anyone leave. I didn't have anyone upset with me. And I said, this isn't about productivity. I actually think you're probably too productive at home. You need the ability to have that switch. I'm leaving home and I'm going to the office. I'm leaving the office and I'm going home. And when you're working from home, you do not have that switch. It stays on all the time. I said, I actually think you need a little bit of water cooler fun. Like, I couldn't believe I was saying it, but it was true. 
And, you know, I realized at that time that we did have that team and that culture that wants to win. They want to come in. They have a mission that we're all aligned on. They want to serve each other. They want to serve the doctors. And I think that's when you know you have a winning culture. And I think it's really important to build teams that want to win. You said a few things in there that I think were really interesting. And and one of them I was actually thinking about earlier today, and it's a question that I had never asked anybody. And I listened to you speak on one of the videos about Rock, where you're very explicit about the fact that you guys are a support center. This is not a corporate headquarters. And you just mentioned having your team, the support center staff, come in. Everyone that's working out in your clinics, they're going into the office. That's not an option to not. And I was reflecting on whether or not within these service organization environments, if you can have a disconnect in culture between what would be the corporate culture or support center and the culture within the clinics. And if it's something that you put thought to, and if there is a way to kind of align what that is like when you have support center personnel versus those that are frontline seeing patients. Great question. So first of all, I wish we were in front of the 115 people that sit in this support center, because once you said corporate, they would have all gone, oh, you know, we almost have this swear jar where if you call this corporate, you have to put money into it. And that's the commitment that we've made here. This isn't a corporate office. A corporate office assumes that there's some ivory tower and people directing other people on how to do things and what to do. And that's absolutely not our model. Our model is servitude, and I try to explain servitude in a number of different ways. It's how well we listen. It's how quickly we resolve issues. It's how transparently we communicate and how swiftly we communicate. It takes a lot of different forms, but I think it's super important to always remember that you're serving someone. As long as we all have that mentality and that's what wakes us up, then the alignment in the clinic is very strong and they feel very well supported. If you ever have a corporate infrastructure, the clinical teams are always gonna say, they don't know what it's like to take care of patients. They don't understand the stresses that I've had. And what's really interesting is a number of the people that work here inside of our support center came from the clinics. So they know, and they know the stresses that come with that, how hard it can be to deal with patients who have had a bad day. You know, everyone has a bad day and it can manifest its way and it's hard. And when you're seeing 70 patients a day in an orthodontic clinic, that's a lot of people that have a smile on your face 100% of the time. And so I think it's also important to cross-train, make sure that the people who work here have experience in clinics. All of our area managers, all of them but one, started in a clinic and they worked their way up to now manage anywhere from four to 14 clinics. And the majority of those team members came from an acquisition or a partnership that we did. And that was just a remarkable person that worked in a clinic, showed tremendous talent and a desire to grow themselves in their career. And they weren't stopped by the four walls of their clinic. They're now leading big teams helping solve big issues, and I think do things in the industry that, quite frankly, a lot of people aren't doing. And so it is fun to watch the alignment, but also to watch these people rotate in and out and develop new skill sets that I don't think we could have ever dreamed about 10 years ago would be possible in the dental world. That's fantastic. Would you say that you prioritize hiring from within? I think we have a mix. I mean, there are times when the skill sets that we need 
they're very, very technical or specialized, right? So when you talk about our business intelligence team, we build our own data warehouses, we've built our own dashboards, doctors can real time go in and see how their clinics are performing, Clinical team members can see how the clinics are doing, revenue cycle. We have a centralized revenue cycle team that can watch all aspects of that. So when you're talking about those really highly specialized trades, you've got to go outside and find that talent. But I think it's a really good mix. Now, the other part of that, this is funny because I get asked a lot of questions about, what are you doing to hire more women? I'm like, we have the opposite issue because the majority of you know individuals who work inside dental clinics are women. And if you believe in them, you train them, you lead them, you mentor them, you guide them, you push them, those people step up. So then you find yourself working in a company that's mainly women. And we're looking around saying, I don't have an issue with women. I need to get some more men in here. So it's kind of funny when you watch that happen. When you see that happen, you know you have a culture of succession planning and development. And I think that's really important. It's actually a great point and something that I have noticed when working within your organization. And I'm curious because dental does have so many women that work in it, but not all the time within organizations at the C-level or senior executive do you see as many women that you do in rock. And I think you just pointed out something really important. It needs to be a culture of supporting and progressing the employees that you have within your organization to provide them those opportunities. Can you talk about that a little bit more, like what that looks like for you guys, how you do that? I talk a lot about what are we doing to develop your resume? And I tell people, it's not because I don't want you to be here. I want you to be here, but I want you to be here because you're learning so much. Yes, you can leave here and go get paid two times as much. Your resume in one year from today is going to be dramatically different because we are going to push the boundaries of what you do. And you're going to look back and you're going to say, I have come so far. And you're going to be hungry for that. And you're going to want to stay. The money is not going to be the driver. The progression that you have seen, not just on the piece of paper, but even your own skill sets that you're witnessing, it's going to be dramatic. And you're going to want to be here and be a part of that. And I think keeping people oriented on, why am I asking you to do this particular thing? This might feel like a task that you don't understand why. And I think telling them, this is going to be great on your resume. For example, we implemented Workday last year. It's a HRS solution that's pretty complicated. I think probably known as the best of the best, but it's difficult. And so I'm telling the team, you want to have Workday on your resume. I know you don't want to take the training. I know it feels like you have a lot of other things to do, but this is about you as well as it is about Rock. So go get this on your resume. And I think people appreciate that you're taking an active stance in their career and they're where they're going and they appreciate that. And so I think that the development of the teams comes organically when you really put a focus on what are we doing to develop your resume? And we've had people walk out and make two times more. And I tell everyone, I told you it could happen. I think they're going to be capped out because who's investing in them now? Who is their mentor? What is their maniacal focus on their career now? And so we've seen that happen and we cheer it on. And I tell people, I promise you this. 
I love that. One of the principles that we have in our sales and marketing organization is that, you know, we will provide opportunities for professional development, that we will pour into people and help develop them so that they can continue to grow in our organization or another organization. We actually even and kind of call that out. And to your point, we'll cheer it on if it happens. And the ideal outcome is that anybody that kind of passes through and works with you for any given period of time will always look back and recognize that that was a period of growth and that they wouldn't be where they are today if they didn't have those opportunities. So I think it's a really amazing approach. I'm curious, you know, you've managed people for a very long time and you don't run an organization like you do today without having the ability to have hard conversations. Do you have any advice for how to have hard conversations and how you approach those with the folks that you work with? I think there's different personality types that need different ways of orienting the conversation. I have a number of people on my leadership team, this is funny, that I'll start with, okay, let me tell you the good things. Let me tell you the positives. And they say to me, I don't want to hear the positives. Get right to what I need to do to be better. I mean, they're just so critical of themselves and they don't want to spend any time on their good traits. They only want me to tell them what their negatives are. But there are many people who need you to start with that. Let me tell you what's going well. And I can't give advice on what personality type is what. I think you need to know your people and know what they, you know, how they want to accept it. I typically start with, do you want feedback right now? Because there are times when people, they're not mentally ready to hear the feedback and you need them to come back to you and say, yeah, I'm ready now. I want to hear it because I think that's an important part. We're going to have this conversation. Do you want to have it today or do you want to, is today not a good day? Typically people are then curious and they want to have it. This is going to sound kind of harsh, but I'm somewhat known for saying, I care more about your future than your feelings today. So I want people to know I'm actively invested in them. So when I'm giving them feedback, it's not because I'm trying to be critical of them. It's not because I'm trying to be very picky on their certain tasks that they've done. It's because I care about them as humans. And so I believe like putting that out on the table that I'm giving this to you because I care about you is very important. And then I believe in being super transparent. I was going to say, that's such a high EQ approach to ask somebody if they are open and have the space at that time to take some feedback. And also as the leader, being willing to hold on that and say like, it's okay, I, I understand that you're not ready and we can talk about this tomorrow or later on today or something else. And to your point, many people are curious and they're going to want to hear right then like, okay, gosh, what what is this conversation about? But you set the stage for it and you allow them to be ready to enter into kind of that conversation when they're in the right headspace for it. And that's awesome. Honestly, I've never done that before. And I think that's something that I will take from this conversation and go like, that's a really great approach to enter into those discussions. I also think that it's important to remind them that the feedback that you get is from someone's perspective. So it might not be fair. It might not be accurate, but it's someone else's perspective. Some cases, you know what it is, right? They've made a critical calculation error. They've made, and those are easy to say, this was a mistake and what are we going to do to not have it happen again? But when it comes to how you're perceiving someone's work, perceptions, I also like to tell people, before you get upset about it, just realize 
that this is a perspective and you need to hear it because it may be very different from your perspective, but perception is reality. And so we have to deal with it. I saw that you had mentioned, I think it might've been on your LinkedIn profile about that you had had a lot of great mentors and a lot of what you're talking about right now with professional growth and development and how you have these conversations with folks and looking for ways to ensure that their future self is going to be more taken care of than their feelings today. I don't think I worded that in the same way that you did, but I love kind of the notion behind that. How do you think about mentorship? And when, when you think of your career and the mentors that you've had, did that happen organically? Did you actively seek mentorship out? And how do you think about that? I never really did the, hey, I want to meet with you every week and and be a mentor, have you be my mentor. I didn't actively pursue that. But I followed people that I truly admired. And I would seek out advice on certain topics and subjects. And I think that happened for me organically. I do have people at times ask me if I'll I'll be a mentor and I'm say to them, absolutely, I will do it, but the prep work is going to be on you. We're going to be very selective in what we talk about and the things that I'm going to ask you to do because I think mentorship, I don't want to be someone's therapist. I want to help you grow yourself in the areas where you're having challenges. And for me, I had a number of really great mentors, and I still have people that I rely on today. Our chairman of the board is someone that I talk to him every Monday, and I'm extremely vulnerable with him. And I think if you're going to get mentorship, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be able to say, I am struggling with this. It might feel like a really minor thing, but I'm struggling with it. And if you're going to get that mentorship, you need to be very open about, here's where my struggles are. I don't know how to think about this. I need some concepts or ideas, where some resources, some tools that I can go seek. You know, if I went through the number of mentors that I've had over the years, it would take a really long time because they come in so many different forms. I had a number of leaders that I had the chance to work for who were invaluable in my success. And it's really fun to look back on those times and those people and be extremely grateful for anything that they gave me. And so I'm always willing to help anyone out, but I want to make sure that if it's anyone's time that I'm using mine or theirs, that we can make it extremely useful and productive. And a lot of times people aren't necessarily ready to come forward and be as vulnerable as they need to be to take mentorship. It's a hard thing to do. I think ego gets in the way, obviously, and then there's a lot of concern that there will be maybe an impression that somebody's not as good as they are, or you know that you have to kind of protect your reputation, or that you should know everything. And so, I do think that it's one of those ironies, right? Like people are just generally willing to help others when you ask for help, but it's so hard to ask for help because you're afraid of like the rejection or that somebody's going to say no. And so it's kind of this weird paradox that that happens out there. It is weird. I always tell people that people want to help each other and they want to get involved where you need them to. And you'll be just shocked if you go to someone and ask them for their perspective on things. And also a good tip, whenever I interview, whenever I have been interviewed in the past, I just start asking questions. And I find that the interview, they love to talk about themselves. They love to talk about the company and themselves. And you can really find that interview to be differentiated because you've gone down trails that those questions that they had in their back pocket, they didn't have time to ask them because we're now on a totally different track. 
I'm not going to sit down and let you ask me the questions. I'm going to start this conversation and let's get you talking. And then we're going to have amazing dialogue. So I do think, you know, mentorship, asking for it, you're going to be shocked at what you get if you just go ask for it. I love that about the interview process. I'll, I'll tell this story real quick. I was at this conference this week. It was with go-to-market leaders across all the portfolio companies of our private equity sponsor. And they did a, a one-day session where it was great. You got to meet a lot of your peers. And I sat on a panel where we talked about building culture and a positive sales culture inside an organization. And one of the like prep questions that we were to share during our intros, like, what is your favorite interview question to ask somebody? And I didn't really have a great one. I mean, I ask people sometimes, like, tell me something about yourself that's not on your resume, things along those lines, because I like to get it outside of kind of the career-focused conversation. But what I said at the end was like, uh, to be honest, for me, my favorite interview questions are the ones that they ask me. And somebody's like, oh, great. So your favorite interview question is the one that you don't ask. And I go, okay, it's a good way of thinking about that. But if somebody doesn't have curiosity and come with a lot of questions and show a huge amount of interest in the role that they're applying for, to me, that's like a non-starter. It feels like that's the biggest warning sign that it's not going to be a good fit for the role or for our business. Totally agree with you. We talk about that a lot. I don't think there's ever really an answer to a question I think it's just, what's the next question? You've got to be able to tame that inside of you because you can't spend hours asking each other questions over and over. But there really is no full answer to a question. It's, what's the next question? There's that expression that's like, the questions are the answers. And there's a lot of truth to that. I want to take a quick step back. Prior to joining Rock, you had a successful career as a, a senior executive in the telecom industry. And most recently, I saw that you were the CCO for First Orion. And prior to that, multiple president VP roles at, at Verizon. Can you share a little bit about that journey that you took and how you ended up at Rock? So I started with a company called Altel. It was a telecom carrier back in 2001. And at that time, if you remember, there were probably 36 different wireless companies. I think that's important in a minute. I'll get back to that. And that company today still has a cult following. It was acquired by Verizon in 2008, and up to this minute, I mean, it's still, it has its own Facebook fan page. All the employees are part of it. It was an amazing culture of collaboration, of scrappiness, of focusing on the customer. It was an amazing company in terms of leadership, in terms of development. I started at the very bottom as Analyst one, I was very naive at the time, and I started to progress through the company and analyst two to a supervisor, to a manager, to a staff manager. And I, I got a call one day from my VP and he said, can you come on down? And I thought, this is it. This is, I'm about to get my big promotion I've been waiting on. And it's funny how you look back and these things start to make sense and they come together. But he said to me, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, I want my boss's job. She's trying to go do something else. She's been grooming me for it. I can start tomorrow. And he said, well, that's not going to happen. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you're not ready for that job. I've been doing the job. I've been basically doing it for her. My reviews have been phenomenal. What do you mean I'm not ready? And he looked at me and he said, you need to see more of the company. So where do you want to go in the company? And I said, Anywhere but product development, because I don't know what they do all day. So where do you think I got shipped to four weeks later? Product development? 
Yeah. Careful what you don't wish for, I guess. Careful what you don't wish for. But I've found that to be fascinating. And you're probably in that mix right now. When you're developing product, you've got to be technical, you've got to be creative, and you've got to be financial because you own a P&L. You've got to create and craft products that people want to use that delight patients or customers. And there's a lot to that. Typically, no one's good at all three of those, financial, creative, and technical, right? And so you're really developing yourself and along these lines. And so I fell in love with that and had a, moved often in different roles inside a product. And um, I was the director when we got the call. And the call was Verizon just bought Altel. Now, up until this point, Altel and Verizon, we were competitors. I mean, if there was someone that we were competing against, we, no one else mattered. Verizon was who we were always competing against. So I will tell you, trying to bring two cultures together that were somewhat arch enemies is a difficult thing. So most of the employees at Altel did not want to work for Verizon. I, on the other hand, felt like they have been a great leader in the industry. There's more for me to learn. I'm going to take this jump. And that jump required me to move to New Jersey with my family. My twin boys were two at the time. A Southerner moving to New Jersey was terrifying, but I learned so much. I mean, culturally, I learned a lot. I think, you know, the jobs were very different, but the culture was different. At Altel, it was very much a humble leadership culture. Verizon was performance-based. It was leadership at scale. It was highly, highly accountable. I mean, if you worked for Verizon, the one thing that everyone will remember is our credo says, our best was good for today, but tomorrow I'll do better. You are never good enough. Tomorrow you will do better. And that's a performance-based culture. I try to take aspects of both of the Verizon and the Altel, I don't think either one of them were perfect, but I love bringing them together because they've, they've given so much to me. I moved to New Jersey. I stayed in that product world, moved up to an executive director position, got a call. We want you to move to California and run retail stores. And I said, I've never worked a day in retail. I don't know anything about retail. I don't know anything about California. I think you have the wrong number. They called me back a day later and said, okay, when are you moving? Next week. So I took the role and I did not have a clue what I was doing. I didn't know my way around California. I did not know how to run retail organizations, which is awesome. Going to do something you have no idea what you're doing is awesome. You just learn a lot and you really expand. And that's where I learned to lead really at scale. And all of my roles before that, maybe I had a team of 60 people they were all close-knit with me. If someone didn't do their job, I could technically do it. If they missed writing the next marketing brief on this product or whatever it might be, creating the roadmap for a product line, I could probably do that. I could not be in all of the stores in California at one time telling people how to what I need them to get done. And so for me, that was just a massive learning experience on how to lead at scale. Got a call back, go back to Little Rock. I was the region president in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Mississippi and Tennessee, which was 
an awesome job. It was fun. It was great leading big teams. Got a call, moved back to New Jersey for a leadership role and strategy there and spent two years there. My twins at the time were 10 and they came and said, mom, we want to go back to Arkansas. Uh, We want to be close to our grandparents. And I, I couldn't say no. So I left all my options on the table, walked away. It was hard. I kind of felt like my identity had been tied up in that. And I was thinking, what am I going to do next? I took the easy route and went to First Orion. They're in the telecom industry. By easy, I don't mean the job was easy. It's a phenomenal company. And then I got a call one day from Merritt Dake, who was the CEO at the time of Rock. And he said, hey, I got your number and your name from someone who said you would be a great chief operating officer. And I said, well, Merritt, I don't know how I feel about the dental industry. I don't really like to go to the dentist. So I don't know that I could get passionate about that. But I love to meet local leaders. Once again, I'm going back to how naive I was. So yeah, I'd love to meet you. So we met and we had a course of conversations about the industry, about rock. I fell in love with rock. I could see it. I walked the halls and you can feel it when you're here. Like you feel it. Like the people, the energy is real. And it's very tight-knit family feel. But it also reminded me of Altel in the telecom industry. In early 2001, there were a lot of different mom and pop companies, and it was starting to consolidate, partner together. And the best, the ones who were left at the end were the ones that had an amazing culture that had scaled and had focused on the patient or the customer at the time. And so I felt like I I could do this. I think I could help rock. For me, if I'm going to do something new, I want it to be symbiotic. I want to be able to give value immediately but I also want to learn something. And I thought, this is a great opportunity. I don't want to be a one-trick wonder where I just know the telecom industry. What a phenomenal chance someone's going to take on me to get into healthcare, into dental. I don't have that experience, but they're betting on me. And I thought, I can't pass that up. And I am very grateful for Merritt and his willingness to take a chance on me because a lot of people would tend to think you have to know the tooth numbers and you need to know the codes and you need to know the systems and you need to know that this, and I'm very grateful to him for that. That's a really great story. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, when you think about it and the different industries, what is the same? What do you see as telecom, dental, all right, far sides from an industry perspective, but this is what holds true. This is a good question. Our chairman of the board asked me this in the interview. He said, I don't like going to a Verizon store. So what are you possibly going to give to me? And I explained to him that at Verizon, they had 24 hours to prepare 100,000 employees for the iPhone launch. And you don't know that. You don't see that. behind. But watching it orchestrated behind the scenes, that alignment, that collaboration, that delivery at scale was amazing to watch. And that's what I bring to Rock here is how do we at scale support our doctors? How do we support their clinical teams? How do we make sure that their x-ray machines are always up and running? How do we predict when they're going to go down so that they're not down? How do we ensure supplies arrive on time? How do we make sure that collections are at an industry standard? All of those things at scale are what we have to do here. And so I think bringing those processes, it's the same. You just need processes in place. The other thing is patients and customers, it's a very different feel for what you're delivering. 
the service that you're delivering. But I think it's the same is true. They want a great service. They want a great product. And so I don't think that changes. And, you know, people are people and business is business. And so, you know, as long as you understand it comes down to people, it comes down to processes, and it comes down to technology. And those are three things that if you can really hone in on the power of each one of those things, that that's the same. No matter what industry you're in, it's the same. You got to understand them, what you have and what you don't have, and, and go really align those three things. You just said a, a few things that I think are really interesting, and I, I wanted to kind of, you already tied it back to what I was going to ask about related to leading at scale. And you talked about that when you were at Verizon, that was kind of when you were first getting the opportunity to do that. And I think about this quite a bit. I joined Planet DDS in 2019. At the time, I had two sales reps and we had one person in marketing. It was his first job out of college. And now, you know, the team in the sales and marketing side is, you know, 60-ish folks and the company went from 50 to 300-something employees. And with each step and as you grow, you have less control. And it's like trying to, to let that go. And you just mentioned like, well, hey, you know, when the, the team is smaller, if somebody doesn't do it, I can do it myself. And I think process, you just mentioned it, is probably a big piece. But what are the components that allow you to lead at scale? It's a really hard thing to learn, especially if you like to control all aspects. And there's a lot of things that, you know, are out of your control. I think setting the, the right vision and the right strategy that the teams all understand is important. This is what we're focused on, and this is what is important, and this is what the ultimate outcome should be. So everyone is aligned on where we're going, right? There's no deviations from that. Because I think what's really important is when you need the business to move a certain way really quickly, that it can do so quickly. So they trust you. You have an ability, a channel to communicate to employees that they understand and they, they see. My HR team is awesome. And I talk to them a lot. They have 850 employees to take care of. And they're a very small team. So how do you do that? You need to make sure that we have an intranet that is updated with all of the questions that employees might have that they can get answers by themselves at their fingertips. And that's part of leading at scale is figuring out, I can't talk to all 850 employees and what's on their mind. I need to make sure that we're fully aligned in what we need to get done, that they can be self-sufficient, that they are held accountable, that they hold me accountable. Accountability rolls both ways. I need to be just as accountable to employees as I want them to be to me. It's just both ways. And so I think you have to really set out the systems to be able to track things. And you have to have leaders who trust each other, right? Because what can't happen is my marketing team needs to be able to go do what they need to, to get done. And they can't meet with all the every single person in the, this building every day to keep them updated. So we all have to trust each other and we have to have a way to communicate. We huddle every morning at 8.30 for 30 minutes. And we just talk about, as a leadership team, what happened yesterday? How are the doctors? Did they have a good day? Did the teams have a good day? What are we focused on for today? Any big things happening this week? Can't go over 30 minutes. It has to be short. It has to be succinct. And everybody has to be prepared. You know what happens when you do that? You find that your team doesn't show up at work at 8 a.m., get coffee, wander around for a little bit, trying to figure out what they're going to do for the day. They come at 8.30 prepared. 
And once we leave at 9 a.m., we are ready to go execute with the teams that we all manage on a day-to-day basis and a tremendous amounts of work get done. We communicate clearly. We all know what the message is. And that's how you do it at scale. It's frequent, small huddles that allow you to align, communicate, and track what you're doing. The alignment piece is really challenging as you get larger. And communication is hard all the time. So I really like that. I want to take a slight change here and and talk a little bit about your guys' growth over the years. And by all accounts, 2023 was a pretty hard year for many folks, kind of navigating a new environment, new expectations that had been placed on people. Obviously, it's a much a high interest rate environment as well from a financial lending side. But when I look at what you all have done, you've seemed to have continued to grow. And I'm curious, what do you attribute your success and growth over the past 12 months that where others have found it very challenging? You know, How have you guys been able to persevere with that? If you talk about growth from a expanding our footprint, that type of growth, you know, I think we've been very thoughtful about where we grow and how we grow. We've been very true to making sure that who we partner with, they're a true cultural fit to rock. And I think that matters, that they want to be a part of this because what we are doing, what we talk about here is we want to shape the industry, right? There are ways to do this and there are ways that I don't necessarily think are the best ways. It's, hey, the verdict is still out. But what I think is maintaining the heart and soul of each of these individual practices, but helping them, taking so much off their plate so that it becomes easier for them to take care of the patients. I think if you really can do that, I think it's the way to do that. And so I think that the people who want to partner with Rock, they want to be here. They want to be a part of this. They want to be a part of shaping the industry. We didn't go out and partner with a lot of practices at some of these very high, extremely high valuations. I mean, it just, we were always pragmatic about what we did. And sometimes that meant that we missed out on the partnership. But here we are today in a a somewhat stressful financial environment, and we're still strong. And that's important to me is always making sure that you stay true to your current investors who are doctors of this company who have put their blood, sweat, and tears into this place. And I want to make sure that we are always thinking about them first. And then we're thinking about how do we grow thoughtfully? And I think if you really have some boundaries for what you'll do, you'll find yourself in a better spot. We're still growing. We're working through a number of partnerships right now. 2022 was extremely challenging. We had some rather large integrations to complete, and we learned a lot about how to do that thoughtfully and quickly, to your point earlier that we were talking about. But I think the growth for us really comes because we have a really clear view of what we want and what's best for Rock overall. And we stay true to that, and we do not deviate from that. When you talk about just organic growth, we were able to do that too. I think that's very challenging. I think that 2020 and 2021 were inflated to the point we were in a bubble. Any industry that goes into a bubble, it's going to burst. 
and you're going to be okay. You're just going to now get back to standard growth rates. I think everyone needs to, we're not going to go back to the growth rates that we had in 2021. I hear a lot of clinics say, well, I just want to get back to 2021. I don't think that that is, unless you're doing some pretty large things, expanding your clinic size, adding more hours, that's going to be hard to do. Now it's time for us to get back to the standard growth rates. And I think that's a more sustainable Thing. So I think 2024 will be better. I think we can get back to that. I think 2023 was people waking up going, we just crashed. No, you were you were just comparing yourself to a year of unbelievable, unsustainable growth. And we're going to be okay. The industry is strong. I think that it's going to be a difficult year again because of we have some new headwinds here with the political environment. Whenever people feel uneasy, when they feel like they're not certain about what's going to happen. It can create some uncertainty in all aspects, in all industries. And so I think it will be paramount for us to continually communicate why dental is so important. The connection between the mouth and the body, the full body health. I mean, I think people need to understand that. And so I think if people fully understand that, then I think they'll be more invested in their overall oral health. So I think staying true to to understanding that and communicating that will be important for people in, in the dental industry in 2024. We were also able to stay ahead in 2023 because we took a very, we meet every day, right? We see the trends as they're coming and we adjust our plan daily. So there were some big headwinds in 2023. If Medicaid disenrollment was a big one. If you're aware of that, if not, you should go look it up. It's a thing. And if you're going to reduce the volume of Medicaid patients that are coming in the door, you've got to be able to crank your marketing engine in a different direction and go source new types of patients. And when you're meeting every day and you have that flexibility and what mattered last year was very different than what mattered the year before, I could see that. We were a, B, testing different marketing messages. And what was appealing in 2022 was not what was appealing in 2023. And so I think being able to test your messages, understand what works is important if you want to keep that same organic growth. You talk about getting the word out so that people understand the importance of oral health and the, the connection that that has to your entire body and all of your health. And I think that I've had some conversations with the folks and they talked about that new patient acquisition might have become a little bit more challenging. And I think in some ways it's because when there is uncertainty, people do roll back marketing expenses and they try to, you know, save some money in that area. You just talked about making changes, maybe changing the approach and, and how you market. When you think about new patient acquisition, is this, is this always something that is like top of mind a focus that you're continually experimenting and seeking new ways to ensure that you're bringing new patients into your practices? Absolutely. We watch it every day. We compare it to how many patients do we have today versus this same day last week, same day last year? Are we growing or are we going backwards? If we're going backwards, why? Where, where did it go? What's not working anymore? What channel is not working anymore? You have to watch your digital channels every day. You have to have that expertise because the model changes every day. That black box, that SEM environment, that social, paid social environment, that changes every day. 
the machine changes, the rules change, and you got to be on that every single day. You got to be watching where you hit your limit. You have to really have some dynamic expertise if you're going to go solely on the digital channel. I think your community partners are extremely important. Staying on top of them, understanding what's important to them, how do you partner with them is important as well. I mean, this is a really dynamic industry where, you know, you really have to stay on top of so many different factors when it comes to patient care. What's the quality of your care? What are your patients saying about you when they leave your clinic? Are they going to go refer their friends and family or are they not going to refer their friends and family? We decided about, gosh, 2019, we were going to launch Net Promoter Score. We were very nervous about it. But, you know, if you read the book, you know that a promoter brings in five new patients, a detractor sends five away. And, and so we decided that we were going to be dedicated to that. That was something we were scared. No one really wants to go to the dentist at times. I hate to say that. I love all of ours and I want to see all of ours, but it's hard to think about. And so we weren't certain the feedback that we were going to receive. We were ready to have it, but we were nervous about it. It was actually one of the most interesting things that I had seen in the dental industry because at Verizon, we had done net promoter score for years. We chased it. And the best we could ever get was 50%. We were 90 plus percent in all of our specialties. So we had patients saying, I loved getting my wisdom teeth taken out. I give you a 10. And I'm thinking to myself, really? We've learned things. You know, you see trends, you see things in that data. And there's always something to work on. But our aggregate score is 90% in all of our specialties. And so that was something for me to go, man, we do have such an amazing group of doctors and clinical team members that take care of patients that they had a really hard surgery that day and they left and said, that was a 10. That, that's awesome. We've learned a lot. We see a lot. There's been clinics where we had too long of a wait time. We needed to work on that. We've had clinics where the receptionist needed a little etiquette training. It's good to see that at scale and be able to read it and do something about it. The worst thing you can do is get the data and do nothing with it. So you guys got some great insights that you were able to action upon. And do you guys still do the MPS scores? Is it like, what's your cadence? Absolutely. It's random. We don't get to pick it, obviously. It's here's all the different appointment types. Send them a message. Ask them if they would refer their friends and family on a scale of one to 10 and give us some more information. And, you know, we don't have a say in who gets that message. It's all random. It's thousands of messages, and it's really fascinating to watch. That's very interesting. I want to be conscious of time. I have just a couple questions. Where do you go to learn? Are you a book reader? Do you listen to podcasts? What is your favorite channel to go and learn new things? I am a extremely curious person, and it will catch people off guard because I have a lot of questions. And so I have to explain to people, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, and it's not because I'm playing gotcha. I am truly curious. So I think, number one, I'm just a curious person in general. I taught myself SQL when I was an analyst one, so I'm really savvy with data. I love to look at our own data and get insights and decipher things, but uh, I love podcasts. Let's try to listen to them on my way to work, on my way home, on the weekends. I enjoy reading 
I like doing audiobooks too as an alternative when I'm on the go a lot. I read a lot of industry blogs and things of that nature, but I'm just a curious person. I like to ask myself, how does that work? And then you find yourself down all kinds of different channels to understand how things work. Last question. So if I was doing this podcast from my office, you'd see all sorts of stuff behind me and they all have meaning to me. And there's, you know, stories behind it, either books or items or pictures or things like that. And I've been on calls with you in your office and you have an artwork with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about the importance, how that artwork is important to you, uh, what RBG means to you, and if, if she's been a role model within your life. First of all, when she passed away, we have uh, an employee here who painted that picture that was in my office. And the original painting is actually hanging up, I believe, maybe in her college. I'm going to get this wrong, but somewhere that is very special to RBG. So that's really cool. And he made 100 prints and he promised to never do any more than 100. And so I absolutely love that. People will walk in and they'll say, you can't have RBG in your office. That's a political statement. And that, no, you can't be political when you're doing that role. So I want to be very clear. It's not a political statement, but I do think there's a lot to be learned about her relentlessness, her focus on trying to change, make change, get things done, stand for something, the grit that she had. She was a force of nature. And I think anyone can learn from her, whether it's her work ethic, whether it's what she was fighting for, whether it was the grit and the constant just grind on her that she just took all the way to the end. You know, you you saw videos of her working out with her weights until, you know, the very end. I mean, she was just a phenomenal person. And I think she's certainly someone that I look up to and that fight that she had, no matter what you're fighting for, you know, if it's truly worth it, you'll be fighting for it no matter what, you know, the grit, the determination. And so I think she's a phenomenal person, but it's also a little bit of a memento from a special employee. A force of nature is a, a great way to put it. Christy, thank you so much for taking the time today. I've really appreciated having you on the show and having this conversation. Thank you. Enjoy being here. The Dental Economist Show is brought to you by Planet DDS. To find out more about how cloud-based dental software by Planet DDS helps unleash dentists and their staff to focus on patient care, visit www.planetdds.com. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes by following wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.